I'm Tommy from Indiana. I'm Matt from Savannah, Georgia. I'm Jen from Oakland. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me and you. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is the comedian Dimitri Martin. Uh, He's an accomplished stand-up comic. He's also had his own stand-up and sketch show, Important Things with Dimitri Martin on Comedy Central. He's been featured in uh, in a number of films and uh, starred in one recently. And now he's the author of a brand new book called This is a Book. Uh, Dimitri, welcome back to The Sound of Young America. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think we counted it up. It's actually been seven years since the last time you wow. were on The Sound of Young America. It's a long time. Thank you so much for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, so I wanted to ask you about something I don't think I, I asked you about seven years ago. Um, although <laughs> I have to admit, my memories of, are vague. Um, and that is skateboarding. Yes. So... I know that skateboarding was an important thing for you as a kid. You grew up in in New Jersey on the Jersey Shore. Yeah. And I'm I'm from the city and I think skateboarding has a very different meaning in yeah, those two places. So tell me what like skateboarding meant to you. Sure. And I, that's a I think a good question as it re- pertains to geography because for me that makes me think about the kind of history of skateboarding, as I understand it, uh, from Dogtown and Z-Boys and certain, you know, movies that documented skateboarding in a way, put it in a historical context. So I was part of, I think it was considered the second wave of skateboarding. Maybe it was the third. I don't even remember now. But when I saw it placed more into historical kind of lineage, uh, skateboarding, I guess, in the 60s, late fifties, there were people with scooters and stuff, you know, in sixties, there were these really small little boards with roller skate wheels or something like that. Anyway, the point is by the time I got into skateboarding, it was the eighties. And that was when the bones brigade was pretty big. We're talking about a very young Tony Hawk, Lance mountain, Mike McGill, Tommy Guerrero, Steve Caballero. Was is Lance mountain the name of a real skateboard guy? yeah yeah that's a real skater <laughs> it sounds like a it sounds like a los angeles weather reporter <laughs> yeah that's right that's he was a really funny guy too he was he was the kind of clown i think of that crew you know so the skateboarding culture that i really aspired to be part of was that that was west coast and that was in a way kind of suburban i mean it was somewhat urban but it wasn't there weren't like real tough guy skateboarders in the way that i think skaters in the 90s became but I, you know, and I was in Jersey, so I always wanted to be from the West Coast. But I remember it more as kind of suburban California. And you're talking about maybe swimming pools, empty swimming pools, you know, that kind of a suburban existence, which later migrated into a much more urban kind of widespread street skating uh, experience. But I was a street skater and I still skate and I've, I've loved skateboarding. But I realized now thinking about it more, skateboarding and stand up, there, there's a similarity between those for me that uh, is kind of important. And it's that each of those is kind of incremental in its kind of composition with respect to, say, a body of work. By that, I mean, you're going to have a bunch of skating tricks, a bunch of jokes or bits, and together, 
if a person makes a bunch of those things, then that's their kind of repertoire, their body of work in that. That that process of learning a trick has always fascinated me about dudes that are into skateboarding because skateboarding is this um, culture that is uh, built around you know, kind of being slightly dropped out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's sort of like a, it's like the classic slacker culture, possibly second to weed culture, but right. interrelated. Right. And, and yet when I think back to the people that I knew when I was a teenager who were into skateboarding, what they did with their time was practice over and over, like work so hard, fail so much. Yeah. To learn to do something that at the end of it, outside of the context of skateboarder culture, wasn't even that cool looking or anything. Yeah, it's true. I think that's, for me, a big similarity to stand-up. And it might be because I'm a joke teller, but it's like, there's a diligence to it. And all these comedians I look at, they just, from the outside, might seem more like slackers or guys who are kind of barnacles on the real world of work and stuff. But when you're in there with them, you're seeing guys who are working and girls who are working women. I'm not trying to be a sexist comic. <laughs> You're seeing people who are working really hard at their craft, at what they do. It could be fart jokes. It could be very personal stories. You know, it could be one liners that are kind of absurd, but by and large, you're going to find people who are like the skaters. That's what I mean. Almost in the repertoire where, yeah, you just see this guy, just trying to land that trick over and over again. And then he gets it and you say, Oh cool. This guy can do a double kickflip. Like he figured it out for two weeks. Every day he was sitting there kicking the board, pick it up again, try it again. And it's weird. It could be just some random bit about dogs or something, but you see the guy one night. Oh, I see his premise there. This thing about a dog. Okay. No. Oh, he's going to do it again. Okay. There he goes. And then either, you know, you get it or you don't, but there's a similar diligence, which to me is great because, I'm th over 13 years in stand-up now, and I'm not bored yet. I still like it, you know. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Dimitri Martin. Um, after having uh, starred in a feature film and um, had his own television program, he's just released a book called This Is a Book. Let's hear a little bit of my guest Dimitri Martin's stand-up comedy. I think the worst time to have a heart attack is during a game of charades. <laughs> Especially if your teammates are bad guessers. <laughs> the only time worse would be during a game of fake heart attack. <laughs> Followed by naps. <laughs> I went into a shoe store and I said, uh, hey, can I get those in a 10? The guy said, sure, and he went in the back. And a couple minutes later he came out and he goes, I don't have a 10, I have a 9. Great. Because while you were in the back, my toes were severed off. So that idea of swinging and missing as being part of both the practice of skateboarding and the practice of comedy is interesting to me. You were a, a high achiever in school. Yeah. Who went to an Ivy League university and... Um, I played the game. Ended up getting a, a full scholarship to uh, NYU Law School, a, a prestigious yeah. law school. Um, as a kid and teenager, did you feel like you had to narrow your possibilities to make sure that you could do everything right? Did you have room 
to do all that failing? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. When I look back on my childhood and I think, I think about, okay, what did I want to do with my life? When people say, what do you want to be? Number one, I don't remember having dreams. I don't remember thinking, oh, someday I'm going to blank. You know, I remember having plans thinking around seventh grade, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. That's my plan. Corporate lawyer. Again, this is the eighties. So I didn't know what a corporate lawyer was or did, but that sounded more impressive. So I was like, that's, I want that then. That's even better. All you knew was that they had convertible BMWs in movies. <laughs> exactly. And they had LA Law and all these shows about them at the time. So I thought, corporate lawyer, that's it. And uh, what you should have remembered is that they always get into a car accident and then realize they have to change their life because <laughs> right, they right. were talking on their car phone. They're always a starting point. That's a starting point kind yeah. of job. But then there's like, yeah, some revelation, right? They go to some weird afterlife based on uh, their negligence. <laughs> At paying attention to what what really mattered in life, yeah, but I didn't see any of that. So I guess what we're saying is you should have paid more attention to the Albert Brooks movie. Defending that's your right, life. I should have just done my homework. <laughs> Love Albert Brooks. So yeah, so I wasn't even thinking like you know, like I said, I like breakdancing, I like skateboarding, and then I wanted to dunk a basketball. I like drawing. Nobody cared, and and I went to this public school. I'm from Jersey Shore. This is not a hotbed of art. <laughs> so the, it was not encouraged. It was considered a track two class. Art was valued less. If you got an A in art, that that actually hurt your GPA compared to getting an A in physics. <laughs> it was like you got kind of penalized for just taking the class. So I, I went to an art school where you just got an A just for taking physics. Right? <laughs> if you're in physics, hey. It's like, wow, nice, nice reach. Hey, good yeah. work. Yeah, so this was like where I'm from and my family, it's like business. When I got into Yale, that was like a big long shot. I was so excited. Then my family found out there's no business major. What? How does Yale not have a business? What are you going to do? So I, I said, I don't know, you know. So I ended up majoring in history. I changed my major like 10 times, but I ended up in history. But there's this hardwired immigrant work ethic, practicality kind of based value system that's very hard to climb out of if you don't know any better. So I didn't even think, I didn't play music. Nobody in my family had an instrument, played music. We don't even have any books in my house. It's like crazy. I think about it now and I'm like, I don't know how I kind of climbed out of there. It wasn't a terrible place. My family was fine. It's just a different way of going about life. Creativity was not something that was isolated and identified and valued. Say, hey, you are a creative person. Like you should think about using them. It was more like, okay, you got this test score. Good. You got an A, good. You're on the right track. What school are you going to go to? Good. That's a good one. Nice sweatshirt. Very impressive. What's your major? Oh, no business. You know, it would have been the perfect thing for them would have been go to business, do business in law. People would say, law's good. You know, it's a ticket. You can use it for this and that. It's kind of, it gets kind of mindless after a while. Turns out, yeah, I like drawing. I, I like playing guitar. I like writing. I like telling jokes. So these weren't even things that I had to make time for or to eliminate because they didn't exist. Only drawing and then that I stopped for whatever reason because, I don't know, just there was no feedback loop that encouraged that. So it just kind of went away. Years later, when I was in law school, I started painting just out of the blue. I just bought paints and I was like, I want to try to paint. And then it was even years after that that I started trying to play music. So we talked, if we talked less in 2004, I had been playing music just for two years at that point. I had just started. But I remember I got a, I got a guitar, harmonica, keyboard, because I wanted to score a one-man show. So I like the idea of making my own music, which I didn't know how to go about doing. 
when I bought the harmonica, I, I remember I didn't understand why there was a letter on it. Of course, I knew it was a note, but I didn't know what a key was. I thought a harmonica was like, like a piano. It's like just all the notes are in there. But I didn't know, oh, this harmonica is just the white keys, basically. Now I understand. But it's, it's pretty interesting to be an adult and to have that level of ignorance of something. Because the nice part about it is you get that discovery. The learning curve is so rich and steep, you know. Have you ever read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin? A long time ago. This is one of my favorite books. This is a great yeah. book. If you're looking for if you're looking for an 18th century book, it'll give you a few good yucks. Yeah, uh, this is a really good one. Um, there's this amazing part in there. It's full of amazing parts. So the man was a, a remarkable and a madman in just absolutely charming ways and amazing ways. Yeah. Um, one of the things is he made this chart for his life that involves all the. He made a list of the canonical virtues that he wanted to embody, like chastity and thoughtfulness. I don't remember exactly what they were. And then each day he would check the boxes that he had had that virtue that day. Yeah. So if he had been unchaste, which comes up pretty regularly in the chart that he reproduces in this book, <laughs> great. Um, he doesn't check. And then he adds up the number of points. And it's interesting to me because as you were describing your childhood as a planner, I thought to you describing your uh, early adulthood, trying to control your obsessiveness yeah. about pursuing various activities through a chart system. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up putting that in that, that first one man show I did, the one that I tried to score. I sat there and I was like, I want to do a show that's going to be not just one liners. I love one liners and that's where my head naturally goes, but excuse me, how could I do something different. I don't know, like a narrative. How can I just talk to the audience and tell a story or something, something personal. So I looked through my notebooks, tried to find something to build on here. And I came across that notebook that had my own point system in it. And that ended up being really useful. And I put that in the show, but it was weird to find it. I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot I did this. It was 27 weeks. I managed to do it. It's like half a year. I committed to that system that I made and I put it in that show. See, I found a way to make myself the puzzle. Finally, I became the puzzle to solve. A point system. I turned myself into a weekly point system. Seven categories. Five points in each category. To be tallied every Sunday night. 35 points maximum possible. Dimitri, week, situation. It was cool. It was, like, it was almost therapeutic to be like, ah, I see, this is what I do. So much of your humor is about... Uh, puzzles and lots of humor is about puzzles. Yeah, um, lots of humor is about the relationship between what's supposed to happen or what's expected to happen and what doesn't happen or what does happen in an unexpected way. Yeah, um, and but but you more than almost anyone else have distilled it down to little puzzles. Yeah, and. Hearing you des describe that Benjamin Franklin, uh, Benjamin Franklin, like uh, system of building a curricul curriculum for your life, what it sounds to me like is as as in a puzzle, essentially trying to find a solution to a problem which is to say you put forth this problem of how do I write a really long, and you have a palindrome in here that's several hundred words. Yeah, it's 500 words. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but you put forth this pr- problem for yourself and then find a solution for it. Yeah. A- and that gives you uh, that, that kind of problem solving. And my brain is an obsessive problem solving brain too. Gives you a sense of control. Yeah. Over what's going on around you and what's what in your life. It's true. I think it, it makes you feel like you have some control over your fate or your destiny, or at least in the small slices of it, you can steer how you're going. You're not just floating along. Even if it's an illusion, it's a pretty good illusion. It's a pretty good way to trick yourself into feeling like you have some handle on what happens to you. You know, do you, do you feel that way about doing that? Like, does, do do you find that that genuinely settles you when it comes to, you know, existential crises? I think so. I think what I've learned about myself over the years is that I'm pretty restless. Um, if I multitask, it's probably because I'm, I'm, I have difficulty just focusing on one thing. I don't know how much I want to be some Renaissance man or do all these different things as much as in the moment, I just want to feel engaged. And I think if I pick the right things to spend my time doing, then time kind of moves differently because I really can get uh, fully immersed in things and feel very alive and mm, challenged, but in a good way. I feel like the sense of progress. For me, possibility, progress, growth, those things are very, uh, they feel very good. It doesn't usually come with negativity. You know, I don't really mind sucking at something as long as I'm getting a little bit better at it along the way. I don't know how much I'll ever be a master of anything, but I think that's a mistake for me personally. It's not about the end point. I don't know how much it's about the journey, but it's more about the process. I just like, again, I like short jokes. I like puzzles. There's an incrementalism, I say, to that stuff where you get into one little problem and you get your way out of it. You find a solution. Maybe you don't, but you can move on to the next one. And then over time, it's like maybe the goals or the results are just the byproducts of approaching things with a certain process, a certain approach. You can apply it to anything. I think you can apply it to drawing. You can apply it to dancing. You can apply it to painting. You know, it's, it seems like it's kind of limitless. You learn these these ways of approaching problems, challenges. And then out of that, I think you find your style, your voice, your body of work. So for me, it's, it's great. Each day I wake up, I think, cool, I could write one of my best jokes today, or I could get better at painting today. You know, maybe I'll paint something. I'll think of a color combination that I didn't know worked together. I'm like, oh, that looks great. I love that, you know, or I make crap, but because I'm not that worried about each specific thing, it's like playing a little trick on your own mind. You know, it's different than taking tests where you have to get the right answer and you have to be worried about today's test. I need to get an A. It's not like that anymore. It's more about process. More with Dimitri Martin after a break. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by VG Kids, printers of T-shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble-rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at VGKids.com. The Sound of Young America is a proud sponsor of Sketchfest NYC in New York City at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater June 8th through 11th. 
You can catch some of the best sketch comedy in the country, including Past Sound of Young America guests, The Whitest Kids You Know, folks from Marvel Comics, and the legendary Rejection Show. You can find more information about Sketchfest NYC online at sketchfestnyc.com. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Field Notes Brand, makers of American memo books and more. Now featuring county fair editions, one for each state in the United States of America. Field Notes Brand. I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. Fieldnotesbrand.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is stand-up comic Dimitri Martin. He's got a new book out. It's called This is a Book. Here's some of the aforementioned stand-up comedy. I like digital cameras because they enable you to reminisce immediately. It's just like, look at us. We were so young. Standing right there, wow. Where does the minute go? I was on the train and I heard this guy say to his friend, man, I'm really good at checkers. Which is the same as saying, man, I'm not good at a lot of things. I read an interview somewhere where you described meeting uh, Stephen Wright. Yeah. Who's a stand-up comedian, has been a guest on this program, and is, you know, um, I think the archetypal one-liner comedian. Absolutely. Um, or at least the archetypal one-liner comedian with the really specific perspective informing that, yeah. those one-liners. And I thought it was interesting that the thing that the two of you, the thing that you really connected to was him saying, man, it's hard to build an act yeah. from little tiny pieces. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That time I got to meet him at Conan, it was. When I was a writer at Conan, yeah, he was a guest. It was really cool. Number one, what was great was, and if you've met him, I think you can attest to this. The guy is very down to earth, warm, humble. I uh, was I was scared to interview him because his stage persona is could literally be a mask for you know one one hundred percent like you know halfway between Asperger's and, and sure. autism. Like he it could, could be he could be a sociopath. Yeah, um, which is kind of interesting about his stage presence and <laughs> totally unique, especially in the eighties. Again. I often mention Stephen Wright because I just remember watching a lot of stand-up on television as a kid, and so much of it blended together. So much of it seemed like the other bits I'd seen. You know, and you're sitting there kind of predicting punchlines and watching people go through these tropes, and then somebody like Stephen Wright comes up, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. This isn't a B-minus Seinfeld or Leno at all. (laughs) Exactly. This is like, what's this guy's deal? That was that was great. I, I loved him. Yeah, so it was nice that time I got to talk to him. And I did a show with him not too long ago. And he was just, that guy's great. And he's such a gentleman, such a nice guy. And before that, we did. I ended up on some benefit show in Toronto, and he was booked on it. Just coincidentally, a month later, they said, oh, just so you know, Stephen Wright's going to be on the show as well. I said, great. And I think the last time I had seen him before that was on the street in Santa Monica. Randomly, I was going to the Coffee Bean in my neighborhood, I walked down the hill, and as I was walking to the door, 
also approaching the door from like another angle was like Stephen Wright, just like opening the door. <laughs> he just like opened the door. And then, you know, I grabbed it behind him and he looked at me. He's like, Hey, I know you. <laughs> we like waited in line together, you know, to get tea or whatever. But immediately I'm thinking, I don't want to, this guy, I don't want him to feel trapped. So I felt, I kind of felt bad. I was like, I should just leave him alone. But he was totally nice. We talked for a little while. Remember I told him, I was like, yeah, I'm a, I said, you're not out here, are you? He said, no, no, I'm visiting some friends. I got some old friends out here. I said, oh, cool. And I, he said, you? I said, yeah, I live out here now. I said, and I, I rent a, an art studio just a few blocks that way, south. He said, oh, yeah? I said, yeah, you know, paint and draw and stuff. He said, cool. I said, yeah, it's weird, though, because it's a, it's a windowless room. The, this place I rent, it's, it just has no windows. It's in this weird building. He's like, oh, I don't know if I could do that. I'd have to go outside. And I said, I would like to just to make sure the the world is still there. I'm thinking like, what's Stephen Wright thinking? He's like, no, I'm claustrophobic. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. that's cool. It's a regular person, right? It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dimitri Martin. He's a stand-up comedian and actor and writer. And his new book, which is a collection of um, uh essays and uh jokes and uh stories and palindromes yeah is called this is a book every comedian's problem that they're trying to solve is making the most laughter out of yeah. a silent audience yeah um and uh, lots of different comedians do it in lots of different ways i mean you know there are comedians like jay leno or jerry seinfeld who take take small things and uh, that everyone recognizes and they play on that recognition and also an sort of enhanced importance for those things. Yeah. Or, you know, there are, uh, you know, I think George Carlin is a comedian who loves to play with a uh, logic in the context of, of words, yeah. especially, or, um, but I think often the most esteemed comedians are comedians whose stage performance is, um, and, and not necessarily the most successful or the, but the most esteemed comedians are, are ones whose stage performances feel like an exploration of self. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you ever, if you, if you ever worry that if you're only trying to s solve problems that have answers, that you are limiting yourself as an artist. Not really. I think I've done f three one-man shows that were in almost entirely autobiographical. And in there, the first being the one that I talked about the point system in, I had an opportunity to figure out what my connection to an audience could be or how I could get laughs without just, say, as you say, solving problems or doing these little jokes. And the shows did pretty well. It was pretty fun. After doing those, I thought... I want to do more of this other stuff for a while. And I hope I get to grow into some of that more, uh, easily accessible self-oriented material or more opinion based material. But in a weird way, the most honest thing I can do is what I do. Um, the jokes that I tell, I can't help but be myself and the drawings, you know, people, pejoratively will call me a prop comic because I have drawings or a guitar comic because there's a guitar for part of the show. A palindrome comic. Yeah, like I don't really care. Another palindrome comic. It does, yeah, it's whatever. Um, 
what I do now is I do theaters and I get to do 90 minutes, sometimes more. I don't think it's wise to maybe do more than 90, <laughs> but sometimes the crowd's into it. So I come back out and we talk and stuff. You know, I love writing jokes, but I don't just do jokes for 90 minutes. I mix it up and I really try to talk to the audience. And I always tell my friends, I think there's a difference between making comedy and kind of just reporting comedy. When you're a joke teller, you can easily fall into the second. You can just show up and just say the jokes. Like, here are my jokes. These are the ones that I think work. Other crowds have told me these work, so here you go. These are the jokes. Or you can make comedy where I can do the jokes, but I can be more present and look at the audience, talk to the audience, do crowd work, look at the room that I'm in, find connections between jokes that I didn't realize were there, like tag a joke, just improvise more. It's more making comedy. And I think that that ends up being very personal and very honest. And in that show, what you get are personal stories. You get um, much more of a person giving himself to an audience because I feel like the audience deserves that, especially if they're coming to a theater and they bought a ticket and they're going to sit there in today's day and age and pay attention for 90 minutes. I try to give people more than they'd expect from me. Now, when I'm on television, if you only get four minutes on Conan, if you're doing some Comedy Central special, if stuff's getting sliced up and, and passed around the internet, it's different. The medium's different. And I like what I do for that medium. Eventually, maybe I'll get to do things that are somewhere in between the two or closer to this more personal, revelatory comedy. But I haven't figured out how to do it in a way that I'm comfortable with, as it is sliced up and devoured and moved around and digested and regurgitated like on the internet and stuff. But I like drawings, you know, I put those out there and a lot of that stuff is very personal. I think if most people thought about writing a joke and having to tell that joke, a joke that has a definite endpoint in a weird way, that's much more revealing and personal than just telling some story from your life that just can smear and wash through the punchlines. If it's not funny in the third sentence, oh, yeah, I'm just telling the story. We keep going. But for me, what I have is like, here are 12 words. When you get to the 12th, I expect you to laugh. And if you don't, then we know exactly what just happened. I thought that was funny. I prepared that. <laughs> I said it to you. I put myself out there. And I got silence. You know what I mean? So it's it's a funny thing. Again, when you see Stephen Wright, who I do think is the archetype for a one-liner comic, Stephen is a, you know, he's a brilliant comedian, a brilliant writer. And he's also, his stage presence is very specific. And there's a a, a distance between him and his audience. And it really works for his material. Over the years, I've realized that I'm, you know, I'm just, I just have to be myself. And so I am, I tell my jokes, but I think it's really clear that I'm me just telling the jokes, which made the TV series hard. Cause I was just playing myself on TV, which that's weird, man. You know, it's like, even there, I'm just doing sketches, but I'm just trying to be myself. So you're giving a lot over when you do that. Well, Dimitri, thank you so much for taking this time to be on The Sound of Young America again. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me promote my book. Dimitri Martin is a stand-up comedian, uh, writer, and actor. Uh, his new book is called simply, This is a Book. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download any of our shows absolutely 100% for free. You can also find this show and our other shows, like the comedy talk show Jordan Jesse Go, for free in iTunes. 
If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My email address is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. That's jesse at MaximumFun.org. My only request is that you not correct my grammar. I guess that's about all that needs to be said. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.